And now, with sound investing, here's Paul Merriman. From time to time, I get an email. Um, Their situation is basically, they've been with an advisor for some time and for some reason, uh, they would like to move on. In some cases, they're not actually sure because they don't really know how they've done compared to others. But they do have a sense that maybe their performance hasn't been up to expectations or possibly they get a sense that that salesperson broker is trying to sell them something that's making the firm more money than possibly making them. But the question is, at the end of the day, how do I determine whether I should be looking for another advisor? And if I have an advisor, and maybe I've known this person for a long time, they've become a friend of the family, how do I change that relationship and and give myself the freedom to move on to another advisor. And so it made me think about uh, the, the things that I look for in an advisor that, that would suggest that you would have a better financial future. And even for people who don't have an advisor, in terms of hands-on work, somebody out there has has given you some sense of security with a certain kind of investing. And so we could ask ourselves, not just about the professional advisor who's charging us 1% or commissions or hourly, but what about the people that maybe we we don't pay anything to, but we still accept as our advisor and build portfolios based on what they have to say. Certainly, uh, I would I would be probably in that kind of a situation if anybody is using my advice. But at the same time as I recently got several of these questions in one day, there was also a story that came out about an advisor that uh, kind of was outside of the scope of how we would th- typically think of, uh, of, of, of blessing an advisor, of believing and trusting an advisor. But before I go into that story about that unusual situation, I want to talk about what I'm looking for for you. And I don't care whether it is, uh, it is uh, in trying to judge one stockbroker against another, one hourly financial advisor against another, one uh, fiduciary registered investment advisor against another. There are three things, and today I'm going to add a fourth. But there are three things that I have felt for years are necessary for us to to trust that source of advice. 
The first is some judgment about the ethics and the competence of the individual who's going to serve you. Maybe to be an advisor, maybe not be managing the money. They may turn that money over to somebody else. Could be a private manager uh, picking stocks uh, in a wrap account. It could be a mutual fund. Um, But it, it isn't that eyeball-to-eyeball help that you get from the advisor-slash-planner. But it seems to me that at at the very basic level, these have got to be somebody who you would absolutely, without question, believe are ethical and are competent. Now, it's difficult uh, to judge the ethics of somebody that maybe you know them from church, and how can you think poorly of them? You you want to. You almost feel obliged to conclude that they are, in fact, ethical. They, They belong to the same church. But then there's also the question of competence. Now, maybe you feel a little more comfortable questioning the competence of that person rather than the ethics. But that competence means that they need at so many different levels to understand how to help you and advise you and and manage money for you. But most of us are not qualified to judge that competence. Uh, in, in, in my book, 101 Investment Decisions Guaranteed to Change Your Financial Future, I discuss 100 forks in the road that every investor has to choose. Now, they may let somebody else do the choosing, or they may not choose at all, but just let happen what happens in life. But it's still, at the end of the day, a choice. So, stocks versus bonds... Big, massive diversification versus little diversification. Load versus no load. High expenses versus low. Low taxes versus no taxes versus high taxes. All of those things, one at a time, somebody is looking at those 101 forks in the road and deciding what's in your best interest. So ethics and competence at the advisor level. And by the way, I guess you would would agree with me that if if I concluded or if you concluded that you didn't know uh, the the right way to go at each one of those forks in the road, that maybe it's going to be kind of hard to, to, to measure the competence. Oftentimes the competence is purely based on the performance of the portfolio, and yet maybe what you think was a good return was a very mediocre return because having done done something much less risky or much simpler with more diversification would have produced a much higher, higher return. But you just don't know. All you know is that you're okay with what happened in your personal account. And that's not bad, but it doesn't mean that the person serving you 
is all that competent. They may just be putting you in things that go up because the market is going up. As you know, I've said many times, advisors don't make you money. I can't make you money. The market makes you money. But you do your best to, to, to make that decision about how ethical they are and how competent they are. And of course, I would wish for you that they be very ethical and that they be very competent. Next step, though. The step in some ways that becomes more important because it's the step of judging the competence and the ethics of the boss, of the firm, of the the person or the organization and their demands of that advisor. Uh, the history of investment advice is lined with recommendations that came because the boss said, you will sell this. In fact, in some cases, I am shocked to find out what, what, what I think look like pretty legitimate organizations require a certain balance of kinds of products that the people sell to their to their customers you know find a place where this fits not not do the very best that you can for the customer you know keep this balance of products going because that's how the firm makes money so the firm is an interesting one in some ways i think the firm is the easiest to judge. Uh, I think think the firm uh, allows us, without any consideration for friendships or people that we work with from church or rotary or whatever that, that, that bond is between you and that advisor that might have opened the door to, to, to them working with you in the first place. So that's a hard one to fool with. But the firm, I can go to the internet and I can put in the name of a major brokerage firm. And most people work for these large firms. So you get a sense of how the boss is doing, how, how the firm is doing in terms of, of ethics anyway, because the ethics are so simple as to do a search. You might do the search of a major brokerage firm like Merrill Lynch, a household name, and, and, and you could say Merrill Lynch, that's the way you'd start the search, but then you would put something on there. You would put the word maybe churning or maybe conflicts of interest or maybe um, SEC fines, or maybe arbitration settlements. I mean, there's a a long list of things. In fact, I did that with one firm, and and, and I had the the firm had 1.5 million results of, uh, in essence, uh, bad things that happened, and they had to pay fines. I didn't include churning. I mean, I didn't look up churning. I didn't look up the name of the firm. And then the word complaints, that would have led me to a different kind of list of, uh, of, of, of problems. 
But sometimes those problems aren't necessarily true. And so, you know, you never know whether those complaints are real. Are they, are they complaints written by a competitor? Well, could be. Although, I will tell you that some of those complaints, the listings are pretty, pretty outrageous. And you wouldn't want to do business with whoever their broker was. But anyway, here's what I found. I found by just reading a couple of pages of the things that caused this firm to, in fact, uh, have paid a lot of SEC fines and billions of dollars over the years. And let's not forget that it's the client that that really ends up uh, paying those fines. But some of the reasons in just... In just the first uh, couple of pages, uh, misleading clients in a lot of different ways, but uh, in in one particular case, because the brokers did not tell the clients about the problems with the investment. In fact, the investment was in trouble, but they didn't disclose it. So that kind of disclosure problem, and then sometimes... There are undisclosed conflicts of interest. Sometimes, in fact, there was one case where uh, a firm uh, was uh, in big trouble because they were putting their clients' cash at risk and making a profit off of uh, their clients' cash uh, while they were taking that risk. There were, there were cases where uh, they didn't tell the clients how the purchases or sales were made. And it made a difference. Uh, clients didn't know this until, until it was pointed out to them. But, but, um, but the, the bottom line was that the firm had figured out a way to, 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 in essence, charge the client more because they got something back for charging the client more. In one case, there was a $50 million payoff to whistleblowers uh, within the firm. $50 million to, uh, to, to re- report dastardly things going on inside this firm. So uh, that's one problem. And I'll tell you, when I read all the complaints, when I read all of this the fines and all of the reasons they were fined, I don't give these firms very high ethical numbers. They may be competent, but you see, I'm, I'm thinking their competence is probably going to show up in a different way. Their competence, other than these illegal things, is going to show up and how I get their advice. What do they do that makes me believe that they act in my best interest? Well, this may come as a shock to you. But many firms are known for their ability to put together products when that particular kind of investment is at a peak. Now, why would that be a big deal for a firm to come out with a new investment when that kind of an investment is selling at a very high price. Well, 
You, I think you know the answer is that the public has a tendency to want to buy things that have made a lot of money recently. And the brokerage firms know that, so it's not unusual that they bring products to the market that are very easy to sell but are not in the best interest of the investors. In fact, in Jason Zweig's book, Your Money and Your Brain, he talks about one major brokerage firm that brought out two mutual funds. They raised virtually in hours over a billion dollars right at the very peak of the technology boom uh, of 2000. So it's hard from, from, from my understanding of how our industry works. While it does seem like there are lots of people that we know eyeball to eyeball that it feels like, now those are ethical people, I can trust them, they live in my community, they'd have to treat me ethically because if they don't, they're going to they're gonna face me here in, on Bainbridge Island. But the firm is different. The firm is often way at the other end, uh, well, on the other side of the country. In, in our particular case, here we are on Bainbridge Island, and there they are in New York. But I want those firms, I want them to be as close to, to spotless as possible in terms of having legal problems. That's one of the reasons I have such high regard for dimensional funds. I have high regard for Vanguard. Now there are there are even load families that I, I have a decent amount of regard for, but in some ways they still kind of hide certain things from their investors that make it hard for the investors to actually judge how they are doing. See, the more difficult it is for you to judge how a, a, a manager is doing, the less likely you are to complain if you can't judge. But then finally, there are the products. See, I want the advisor to be ethical and competent. I want the firm to be ethical and competent. And I want the products to be ethical and competent. And, and so here is where we have this question. We have to ask. And I don't know if it's the advisor's fault or if it's the firm's fault or if it's the product's fault and they haven't picked the best products to sell when they have high expenses, when they have high turnover, when they generate high taxes. I'm not, I'm not sure how competent those those uh, portfolios are now here's the problem in any actively managed fund you have a manager who is swearing on the bible that they are doing everything they can to beat the market i mean if they can't beat the market of what value are they to you since you can simply buy 
the indexes for 10 cents on the dollar what the active manager would charge. So I mostly would like to see the products be index funds, no load, low expenses, high tax efficiency, products that are good for you, at least from everything we know about the past. But then along comes this story. And I don't know whether to tell you who it's about. Um, well, I guess I will because this story is, is, is everywhere in the financial industry's uh, websites and newspapers and whatnot. And uh, here it is in Barron's. The title of this article is called The Fallout from Ken Fisher's Comments. Now I'm going to tell you the story that has gotten so much attention. And then I'm going to tell you why this is not the reason that I'm not a Ken Fisher fan. But it still begs how we should respond if we find out, even if our advisor is ethical and competent, working for an ethical and competent firm and selling ethical and competent products, what if we don't think of the person being somebody that we would want to have as a partner because when you have an advisor at some level you have a partnership it's almost in many cases like a, a marriage like a family relationship but Ken Fisher got his uh, himself in a little trouble well maybe we'll find out that it's a lot of trouble and I'll just read a little bit uh, from this report from Barron's, and then we'll have a link to a, to a video of one of the people who was there at this particular event where Ken Fisher spoke. Now, what's interesting about this event is it was not open to the public. In fact, it's, a, it's an event that, and I've never been to this event, but to read about it, it's an event where people in the industry are free to come and speak openly without uh, fear of somebody who's watching going back, talking to the press and saying, you know, those neener neeners about somebody that might uh, cause uh, uh, people to leave uh, the management of a particular advisor. But in this particular case, um, Ken Fisher spoke and said some things that were really offensive to a lot of the people in the audience. Some of those were what were perceived as uh, against um, women and minorities, uh, and, and in fact, I don't even want to get too much into the details, but I, I, I if you want to hear from uh, one of the folks that was there that uh, posted a video about what happened, we'll have that link. But it does. I mean, this the, here's an advisor who has over a hundred billion dollars 
in private management. He may be, I'm not sure, well, I know that Ray Dalio has about $150 a billion, but he's a hedge fund manager. But Ken Fisher's work, uh, some of it is for large pension funds, but a lot of it is with individual accounts. I, th- I think his minimum is $500,000. But uh, he made comments uh, about uh, genitalia. He made comments about picking up on a girl, according to this. Uh, 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 in fact, I, at one point he talks about Jeffrey Epstein. And, and so what do you do with this? What if you find out one day that uh, your advisor is a Democrat and you're a Republican? Well, you know something? To some people, uh, that, that, that may not be about the ethics and the competence of, a, of the advisor as an advisor, but maybe you don't want a Democrat managing your Republican money. Or maybe you find out uh, that they are, um, they, there's just something about them that rubs you the wrong way. And so how important is that? Well, I've always taken the position that, look, if I come to work with a red nose, a, bl- a clown nose, and, and wear funny clothes, that's not so important as what I do for you. But what does that do about trust? What does that, what does that do when that advisor um, has made, when I say made a mistake, the market does something very different than what the advisor said it was going to do? Because so many people tell you what they think the market's going to do. You see, if that trust isn't there, the most important thing that 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 advisor has to do is to keep you positioned where you should be. Of course, they could be wrong. But keep you on course so that you get where you're trying to go if the market eventually plods upwards as everybody in the industry seems to think it will. But if that trust is weak, and if it's because that person wears a clown nose and, and, and funny clothes, or talks about women in a way that, that, that it just upsets you, how important is that? And then the question is, if the person you're dealing with isn't isn't even this guy wearing the red nose, you're dealing with somebody else in the organization. If we lose trust in the organization just because the guy with the red nose is running it, is that important? And there's there's a part of me that would like to say, you know, just just judge me by my work, not how I look. Not what color I am, but it it does pose a, a serious challenge. And Ken Fisher has right now a serious challenge. Somewhere I read he's 
already lost a billion dollars under management. Of course, he could lose a billion dollars or make a billion dollars because he's got a hundred billion under management and the market go, could go up 1% or go down 1%. But there's more to this story. When I read this, I thought, that's not the reason to get rid of Ken Fisher. My judgment about Ken Fisher is not about the color of his nose. It is what he believes. And he believes, and I only know this because I've talked to a lot of the people who have had their money managed by Ken Fisher's firm. By the way, I don't know whether Ken Fisher actually manages the money anymore. But he's got his name on the door. And according to people, and I'll give you a source that you can go read um, uh, more about this if you wish, and I will tell you why I'd like you to read more, but, but uh, Ken Fisher commits his clients, even when they are, from my viewpoint, should be in the process of, of reducing risk. I didn't say getting rid of risk. I said reducing risk. I don't think a person who's, and in one particular case, 58 years old, uh, should be all in bonds. But I'm not so sure, depending on their risk tolerance, that they should be 100% in equities. And the Fisher organization historically has had a tendency to keep people committed to equities. And I've met some of those people whose risk tolerance, if you talk to them, their risk tolerance is maybe a loss of 10%, but they're sitting on 100% in equities. The other thing that I don't like is that, that they are so unbelievably aggressive in their sales techniques. And I really do encourage you to uh, uh, go to, in fact, do a, this will be an easy way to get there. Do a search, can, uh, Fisher Investment Company Complaints. And under that, I mean, there's lots of stuff you could read there. There'd be lots of stuff about any firm, probably, that you could read. But go to the Boglehead complaints, because these are folks who know generally quite a bit about investing, but have, uh, have, have been involved long enough to find out uh, how the Fisher organization works. And, and Ken Fisher's not coming to your door, knocking at your door, but there are people who will come to your home uh, if you allow them to. And uh, if you go to this, the Fisher Investments Hard Sell, bogleheads.org, that's, uh, but I want you to find it through the, oh, no, you know what I'll do? I'll put a link to it in the notes of the uh, of of this particular podcast, but if you look at the responses that the salespeople have at the point that you 
have any kind of an objection. Uh, in one case, this this Boglehead had some one-liners that the sales guy had used, like, you don't work on your own teeth, why would you not let a professional handle your money? And when and when the and, and when this person said, Well, if if he's so good, why was why was Fisher a hundred percent in the market during the 2008 crash? Now this question comes up because the Fisher organization takes the responsibility of getting the money out of the market when the market goes down. And that's part of their sales pitch. And the answer was, everybody makes mistakes. Well, it's true. But if you've got somebody committed 100% to equities, and they don't have the risk for 100% equities and the ability to stay the course, the everybody makes a mistake is not a good defense because you 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 have you have hurt somebody possibly for life because number 1 they may have sold out at the market bottom and number 2 they may never go back into the stock market again you have you have scarred their memory so vividly and this person asked how about a cfp wanting to know if this person who came to his House had a C of Certified Financial Planning designation. And the person's response, again, supposedly, was CFP, another worthless, not needed. In other words, they are ready for every, every reason not to do business with them. Anyway, you can go read the complaints. You can go read all of that. But it leads to a really interesting question that also came to me about the same time. Because I've talked about late recently trust several times, okay? Somebody wrote and said, sincerely I think, I have a sense you are sincerely trying to help investors. But I have read that some people question your results and say that they aren't that great. So how do we know whether we can trust you? I mean, this is a great question. I, 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 you, you've got the sense that I sincerely want to help and that the price is right. But just because all this information comes free doesn't necessarily mean that it's good information. And the fact is that I have recommended value. I have recommended both large and small value. And for many years... Large and small value have not done as well as large growth and, 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 and small growth. And yes, that would make my returns lower. But I've been pretty open with you folks. I, I, I've told you about 1995 to 99 
when my recommendations were compounding, now I'm talking all equity, compounding at 11% a year, while the S&P 500 compounded at 20, over 28%. So I, I know that I've tried to warn you that just because I say something has a history of success, that it doesn't mean that you will be successful in whatever you do with your money in a market that has risk. But here, here is the way we should think about this. Think about this in terms of the S&P 500, small cap value, large cap value, REITs. I mean, I could go emerging markets. All of these equity asset classes are going to have periods of poor performance. We know that with the S&P 500, there have been two 20-year periods. I don't remember the 20-year period back in, I think, the 40s and the 50s, and but we do know about the 20-year period that basically started in 2000 through 2019. You know, it's about a about a 5% compound rate of return. Uh, that's, a, that's a loser for you if you expected 20 to 30, which is what people actually believed back in 2000, mainly because it had been doing that well in the latter part of the 1990s. So what do you do if you can't trust Ken Fisher and you can't trust a stockbroker, and you can't trust Paul Merriman. Now, now this is a, this is a dilemma because if you can't trust Paul Merriman, and he believes basically the same thing as you know probably Larry Swedrow and Bill Bernstein and and a lot of other people who are perceived to be working in your best interest, what do you do? Well, if you're young, and if you're following the, the uh, two funds for life, and, and that means if you're 20 years old, you're 30% you're in, in uh, the target date fund, and you're 70% in small cap value, well, if you don't trust small cap, then don't put the 70% there. Take a look at large cap value. In fact, look at the list of companies in the large cap value fund at Vanguard. You're going to recognize most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. And, and, and so that could give you an advantage. Probably not the advantage of small cap value, but remember, with small cap value, it's okay if you don't do well in the early years. As a matter of fact, the, the worse the performance in the early, early years, the more shares you're buying. And if in the long run, which is what you young people are supposed to be thinking about, if in the long run the small cap value does well, you'll be paid for the risk that you took. 
But please go back and look in those tables, like the the, the table that shows the the four different U.S. equity asset classes, the four funds, the large cap blend, large cap value, small cap blend, small cap value. Look at the worst periods, in, in, including 1928, 29, 30, 31, etc. And at least since then, there have been tons of terrible times for small cap value, but in the long run, they have always paid a premium. But if that it makes you nervous. Maybe you cut your your small cap value in half and you put half in large cap value and half in small cap value in that portion of the portfolio. You can see where I'm going here. You can do things to spread the risk. But here's the part that I think is interesting. While I'm not worried about the young person having money in small cap value, I must say that when it comes to people who are, I'll call them old people, uh, that would be people who are slightly older than I am, I'm 76, or maybe it's for people who are 60, or maybe it's even for people who are 55, but here's what the smart people say in the literature. The older you are, the more diversification you should have because you want to do everything you can as you get older to protect against those things that you expect are going to carry the day that fail the day. And that's why we start adding fixed income. Starting to get out of equity because, because you can't trust equities the way you can trust fixed income. It is true when it comes to knowing the future of the stock market, Ken Fisher is not dependable, Merrill Lynch is not dependable, Paul Merriman is not dependable because we can't know. So I, I, I can be feel very good about ethics. I can feel real good about understanding the long-term historical returns of the market of a whole bunch of asset classes. But if you don't trust the things that I believe, not that I know, but that I believe will happen, I'm not surprised because how can we believe anybody who doesn't really know? But if you're young and you're afraid of the things that I believe, then either you know, don't do it. You can, you can overcome the likely out, uh, outcome of not having small cap value by investing more. You could do that. There are people who spend most of their life investing investing in CDs and have enough money to retire. But they're very, very frugal, and they saved a lot. Now I'm going to take another couple questions here. I, 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 I love this question. Um, this uh, fellow, uh, Patrick, has uh, followed our work off and on for many years, and... Um, uh, he he has uh, a question, uh, he, a concern. 
a concern, really, about my overemphasis uh, about the expenses uh, inside of mutual funds. And um, uh, he says, I overlabor uh, the expense cost and the final amount received as a result. He goes on to say that uh, if, if you have a 1% expense and you make 9% instead of 10%, it's not really the end of the world because you're going to get 90% of the return. And unfortunately, that is not how compound interest works. Now let me, let me show you how, why this is wrong uh, when we think about losing money, not making money, but losing money. And I've used this before, but if I start with $100 and I make 50%, and now I've got 150 and then I lose 50% in the second year, now I've got $75. One person might say, well, uh, they, they broke even. Well, of course, they didn't break even because the, the 100 went to 75, but they broke even in the sense that their average return for the two years was zero. They didn't, they didn't lose any money if you looked at the average return, but when you put that money to work and you look at it as compounding, uh, it can look very, very good, better, or it can look worse than average. But now let's think about the implications of a 9 and 10% return. And uh, that 9 is because of a 1% fee. So if you put in $5,000 a year for 40 years and you made 10%, you would have a final value of two million two hundred and twelve thousand nine hundred and sixty-two dollars Now, if you made 90% of that, you'd have $1,991,000. Okay? But you don't. What you really have is $1,689,000 when the return is 9%. So it's a much bigger hit than, in essence, a 10% decline. But remember, one of the reasons I do focus on expenses is I think that you can find funds that have a one-tenth of one percent return, I'm sorry, of, of expense, rather than a one percent expense. So if you made 9.9 percent .9 a year, the total amount would have been 2,153,000. So no expenses, 2.2 million, one-tenth of one percent, 2.15 million, 1% expense, almost $1.7 So it does make a big difference. And, and this even, and i got to point this out, this is only 
at the end of 40 years. If this is a young person investing for 40 years and then at retirement in one pool has a million seven and in another pool has a 2.1 and and, and there's a $400,000 difference and you take out 5% a year, that's real money. And that difference compounds until death, which could mean millions of dollars more uh, by by getting that 1% more. I want to read a, a, a quick comment that just warms my heart, and I read it because I'm hoping to motivate some of you to do the same. Thank you, Paul, for your charitable Dedication to teaching both young and old about academic investing. It was by listening to your podcasts, reading your articles, and watching your videos that I decided to give up actively trading and turn instead to fully dedicate my investments to a long-term buy-and-hold strategy using your aggressive target date fund IRA strategy And in his buy and hold, he uses the ultimate buy and hold recommendations. After understanding what you and the academic investing community teaches, by the way, i I got to stop right there. This stuff I'm teaching, this isn't stuff that I made up. This is something that the academic community has been trying to, 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 to get people to learn because there is all this history that says that it has worked in a certain way in the past. We shall see. It becomes impossible for me to do anything else, he says. I have even changed my YouTube channel name from Trade Inquiry, in quotes, to The Stock Doc, in quotes, and have since dedicated my channel to help share this information with my family, friends, and the world. Know that you indeed made a positive impact. Dominic, you are a very kind person to send that. But you know what what thrills me about this? And it reminds me of the conversation I had with Sam and and his wonderful wife. And if I tell you her name, then some people are going to know who they are. Uh, But they are helping Everybody in the family use the work of the academics. So um, uh, I I do appreciate that. Uh, Let me just uh, take another question here. And I could answer this in about 30 minutes, but I'm going to answer it in less than three. My wife and I are planning for an early retirement. How much would you want in savings? so that you know you are assured to have enough for the rest of your life? God, I love that question. And you can see why it could be a 30-minute discussion, because there are so many variables that go into that. But if you could determine what your cost of living is likely to be, and I can help a little there by the, if you go to the home page of 
paulmerriman.com and scroll all the way down to the bottom, you can link to a, uh, a free uh, chapter, I think it's chapter uh, 10, and it's about 12 numbers that you need to put together your, your retirement uh, to, to figure out how much you're going to need. But the word you talk here about, you use, is, a, is having enough, feeling safe, not having to worry uh, about whether the market's going to um, um, somehow wipe you out unexpectedly. And I think if you have one and a half to two times what you actually need based on a 4% distribution, that you should feel pretty doggone safe. Now, I am working on, right now, I am working on a podcast slash article that will include some 10 to 20 different ways to make the money last longer in retirement. So those 10 to 20 things may be of some value to you. But uh, if you have the ability to invest enough that uh, if you take 4% out of that amount, it will be 50% more than your needs. So if your need is 40000 and this is after Social Security and whatever other needs that uh, m- money that you might have coming in. But if your need is 40000 and a million dollars will allow you a $40,000 distribution, and then you will have enough, but it wouldn't feel or you shouldn't feel all completely safe. But if you had a million and a half, so that in essence... 4% would be 60,000 instead of 40,000 but you still uh, take out 4% that should be very safe and allow you to take out more money but if you have a million and a half and you only take out 40,000 boy now that is a home run my concern for you uh, is that you will have missed the opportunity to enjoy a lot of that money. So if you're looking for the home run deep into the bleachers, I think you save one and a half times, uh, 50% more than what you need. And if you can get up to 100% more, uh, I just think that is uh, should should accomplish that peace of mind goal that that you're after. I do hope that, and I think it'll be in a couple weeks that I'll do the piece on the ten to twenty ways to to take out more money, and some of them will be things I haven't talked about before. So, so um, uh, I hope you'll all join me. Thank you for listening. Do what you can to help this organization get to more people, more family members. 
Uh, we are making a renewed push on 401k plans for larger firms, uh, and we need it, probably 5,000 people. That's how I'm feeling this week, just because I we don't want to get loaded with them, but we're getting somebody up to speed to be able to do those with my uh, my overseeing the process, and uh, uh, so we we are trying to help more people in more ways. And I'll also be reporting how Chris Pedersen and myself, how we did at the AAII National Conference. We will, at the next uh, podcast, have made our joint presentation uh, about the two funds for life before and after uh, retirement and uh, probably have some interesting news on uh, on that trip. So all the best to all of you. As always, good luck. Thanks for listening. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.